Hello and welcome to another Screaming Mayhem episode of Romaniacs. I'm Dorian Linsky and it's all kicking off. Not only has the government been found in contempt of Parliament over its legal advice, not only is the meaningful vote happening on Tuesday, December the 11th, not only will Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn debate their massive differences on Brexit <laughs> live on ITV on Sunday, December 9th, but we're doing the last Romaniacs live show of the year on Monday the 10th, right in the middle of it all. So we might come on stage to find the government has fallen or there's a people's vote or pretty much anything. There are literally about five tickets left to so go to leicestersquaretheatre.com if you want to see four people trying to achieve what the whole of Parliament cannot by making sense of Brexit. <laughs> Sadly, Ian Dunk can't be with us this week because he live-tweeted proceedings in Parliament for a gazillion hours yesterday and he's dead now. <laughs> so let's say hello to another two of our regulars. Dressed as a vicar from the Reformed Church of St. Romania, Naomi Smith <laughs> is the Chief Operating Officer of Best of Britain and the Twitter legend known as Pimlicat. Hi, Naomi. How are you? I'm good. Nerves of steel at the moment required for, yeah, every day throwing something new at us. The night before we recorded the show, Parliament voted through the Grieve Amendment, which makes withdrawal bill amendable. How big is this? Uh, pretty big, pretty enormous. Um, but it's also uh, worth mentioning that the other big news of yesterday was the EU's Advocate General giving advice on um, countries being able to unilaterally revoke Article 50. Uh, and that's a pretty big issue for us as well, because what that does is effectively kill off no deal. And if this takes no deal off the table, uh, does it, as was observed on the BBC's Brexit cast, turn a lot of the rebels, the hard Brexit rebels, into May's camp because they think, OK, well, it's either this deal or you know Brexit? Yeah, I mean, that's my concern at the moment. So we're obviously monitoring our whip count very, very closely, both on uh, no deal and um, on the deal and also on a people's vote. And my big fear is that by basically taking away any um, incentive for the ERG to vote down May's deal, they'll end up voting with it. And I've said it a million times mm-hmm. on the podcast before. I think the situation that I would find myself in were I in ERG, God forbid it, would be to back the government to get a soft-ish Brexit today and in the hope of a harder one tomorrow. So, yes, what, what we've done by basically ruling out no deal is removed any incentive for them to not back her. Some of the hardliners still will, of course, but but that's my worry. We need to make sure we're getting even more rebels uh, from the Tories coming over to us to, to uh, net off some of those that will probably move back towards her. And if People's Vote supporters want to make friends and influence people in the coming days, uh, where might they go? Well, funny you should ask that, Dorian. Um, last month we did a rally. Uh, that was Best for Britain and um, the People's Vote. Um, some listeners were probably there. Romaniacs was there interviewing uh, lots of people, including Justine Greening. Um, it was a fantastic night, so we've decided to do it all over again, but this time during the day, on Sunday the 9th of December, at the Excel Centre uh, in East London. We'll have a couple of satellite um, uh, events happening as well, Swansea and uh, Leeds, but we've got a fantastic lineup of speakers, cross-party, real rabble-rousing, stuff and this is perfectly timed to be two days before the commons vote to really hammer home that message that the the country has shifted its opinion there is now firmly a majority of people that want to stay uh, and that the mps therefore absolutely need to vote down that deal so if you want to come along you have to go to the Eventbrite website so that's b-r-i-t-e uh, Eventbrite, and search for best of britain rally and you'll get all the details there also with us praise be is the very reverend alex andreu writer commentator actor and the twitter legend known as sturdy alex how are you alex I'm all right. Are you uh, stocking the beer fridge and filling the popcorn bin in preparation for the clash of the titans between May and Corbyn? (laughs) I am not. (laughs) No, it's a completely pointless debate as far as I can see. Um, The the future is in the hands of Parliament now. That's what that grieve amendment effectively means. It it says if your deal doesn't, um, you know, go through... You've had your chance. It's then going to come back to us and we're going to determine. And as far as I can see, there are five groups in Parliament pulling in different directions. There's one pulling towards no deal. There's one pulling towards a people's vote or remain. Uh, There's basically a a small EFTA grouping that's saying let's go for a Norway-type arrangement. And then there's Theresa May's deal and, and Jeremy Corbyn saying Theresa May's deal, but I'll do it slightly better. And effectively, all you're having debated are those two most similar options in the middle, and the rest don't get a say in. So I, I, de- I really don't see the use of it at all. Who would you have instead? Um, I would have a representative, a, a strong sort of representative of each of those five schools of thought. I, I think that's the only sensible thing to do. And Danny Dyer. 
And, let's say. <laughs> and, Danny Di- the and Danny Dyer as chair, I think, <laughs> just to go, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I think you're right on the Grieve Amendment and its, and its absolute significance because what we've now finally seen, as Ian Dunn pointed out in his article yesterday, is that we've now got the Commons asserting its dominance over the executive again because for far too long our executive have acted as if they are the bosses and actually they're not it is the commons that is sovereign and what we've seen yesterday is them take that control back again yeah um and now we're in a situation exactly as you said that but, when that falls it's up to the commons also to, to what strengthen what you were saying earlier about boxing the ears into a corner um there were reports yesterday that cabinet spads were high-fiving one another in the back rooms mm. when that yes. when the government lost we that can't be complacent amendment. we mm. can't be complacent um, and we saw some of the rebels um, including people like Damien Green and Oliver Letwin, who would probably only have rebelled against Theresa May if it was semi-sanctioned at least by those whips because they, they know that this could actually help them out a bit. But the point I think I'm trying to make is that by the Commons reasserting their dominance over the executive is good for the People's Vote campaign because we know that there are far more people within the Commons than within the Cabinet who support a People's Vote. So if they're prepared to, after the deal is voted down, to make sure that those amendments go through on whatever happens next, then we should hopefully be yeah. home and dry. Yeah, yeah. But we can't be complacent. You're totally right. Absolutely. A few months ago, we felt that, that Dominic Grieve had been sort of somewhat bamboozled by May, and there was a he kind was of conned, rebellion that collapsed. He? He was promised um, something, and then it didn't come through. But he sort of uh, he's played a bit of a blinder here. Oh yeah, he got yeah. his own back for sure. And I think it was laced with what had happened before, it, because apparently they shine. tried to offer him a concession before he put his amendment down, or before it came to a vote rather. And he flatly turned them down because he said, no, last time you told me you were going to do X, you went and did the opposite. So I'm not. It'd be great if everyone was like that. You could only lie to them once. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? As well as looking at this week's wild developments in the House of Pain, we thought we'd play some of that four-dimensional chess that Jeremy Corbyn is so famous for (laughs) and look a few moves ahead to see exactly how a People's Vote campaign should be fought. Specifically, how should we brand a new Remain campaign? And we've got two special guests to help us. Paul Baines is a professor of political branding from University of Leicester Business School. Hi, Paul. Darling. And Adam Drummond is senior research manager at the polling firm Opinion. Hi there. Hi. Paul, among other things, you're the editor of a four-volume series called Propaganda. The past two years must have felt like Christmas every day to you. Absolutely, Doran. I, I think the, the interesting thing about the 2016 campaign was that it, it truly was uh, a propaganda campaign o- on both sides, actually. But propaganda is often used in a pejorative way, and it's not always pejorative. If you think of government campaigns to stop drinking and driving, they, they play on people's emotions, try and instill certain uh, certain I- ideas and mindsets. And that, that's really what propaganda is. It's forcing opinions on, into people's minds to get them to act in certain ways. But I think, um, I think people are very aware that uh, now that, that the campaign was propagandist. The problem is, if you ask people whether they dislike negative campaigning, they often say that they, they don't like it. But they always see negative campaigning in the opponent's campaign, not yes. in their own. And that's that's borne out in research. And you've also written a book, it's uh, on the table in front of us, listeners, uh, called Explaining Cameron's Catastrophe. What, what, did, what did you say on most of it? Laziness, hubris, eaten, which is both of the above <laughs> together. <laughs> Probably all, but uh, I, he made a lot of mistakes. The, the initial mistake was assuming that uh, he would be able to change people's minds because when he actually called the referendum... Leave, uh, leave were ahead mm. by a few points. Mm. So he must have thought right from the start that he knew something that nobody else did, which is that he'd be able to change people's mm. minds. Now, often enough, when there's a poll um, and in, uh, in, a, in a referendum, people do change their minds at the last minute. Political scientists call it an elite retreat. And it's usually a few points, four or five points. So I, th- I think he was banking on an elite retreat. In other words, people, the elites of society, would change their minds at the last minute and it would therefore uh, be a, a, a remain vote when, in fact, it was a, a leave vote. And I think he also thought he could do the same thing as he'd done in the Scottish referendum, which was frighten people into, uh, into going, into keeping the status quo, basically. And, and as I understand it, ref- it... When was the last time a referendum actually overturned the status quo? I mean, I, I couldn't think of it. So I think there was an arrogance during 2016 that, oh, well, in the end, you know, people don't change their minds. Uh, I think that's probably true. I think he, he, he would have thought that, uh, that, that that was the case. I mean, there were a number of other mistakes as well, though. I mean, the, the campaign was overly negative. 
normally if you ask political consultants what the best way of campaigning is, they'll tell you, you know, it's 50-50, 50% positive, 50% negative. And if you do go negative, try not to make it personal around people's characters, attack the policies instead. There was an element of attacking policy, but but it was just overdone. Most of their uh, most of the Remain campaign, most of the Leave campaign were, were focused around this this negativity. No one made the case for staying in Europe. Actually, I know it's always it was always going to be a tough tough ask because you've got decades and decades of newspaper coverage attacking the EU. So it was always going to be tough. But they really should have tried to frame the the, the reason why we should have stayed in the EU. Is, is that why the caricature of him on the front is not, is not flattering? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the caricature is of him sat on a tree, sawing away, sawing himself off the branch <laughs> to his own doom. Well, he, he, he asked for it. Um, Adam Drummond, it, it's, it seems like a rough time for pollsters, the conventional wisdom, I think, uh, now that I often hear is that pollsters get it wrong and so they're all, for, all polls can be ignored, or rather all polls that show something that you don't like can be ignored. Yeah. Is the industry uh, still sort of recovering its reputation from, from 2016 where, I mean, I know that it's a lot more complex than that and people often don't understand margin of error and mm. percentages and stuff. But, you know, with Brexit and Trump, there did seem to be a kind of what did the pollsters get wrong? What what's what sort of come out of that in the industry? So it's not just 2016. You say it's 2015 and 2017 as well. So <laughs> yeah, 2016 true. is interesting because in the 2015 general election, all of the companies were wrong in pretty much the same way and to the same degree. So we all said that it was going to be you know, a two-point difference maybe between Labour and the Tory vote shares, and it ended up being about a sort of six, seven-point difference, which ended up turning into a majority. Um, and in, in 2017, everyone made almost the opposite mistake and said it was going to be too bigger. Uh, result, even though actually the underlying data coming into everybody's you know, surveys was effectively saying the same kind of story. It was just the way that we were interpreting that data was different. Um, 2016 was an interesting case because you had, for the first time, I think in, in several, well, since, since internet polling really became a thing, you had a modal difference. So the big story in early 2016, which you probably all remember, was that uh, telephone polls were saying, Remain has got this in the bag. It's a 15-point lead. I think Ipsos even came out with one that was a 20-point lead, although they were quick to point out that's probably an outlier. Um, all along, so, so the polling that we do at Opinium is 99% online. So almost all of our stuff is done via internet panels. Um, so online polling, so um, ourselves have... Um, and a couple of others were consistently showing it to be quite a tight race. And Paul mentions that Leave were ahead when the referendum was called. Yeah, we were we were in that crowd saying that, you know, Leave is on about sort of like fifty eight or something like that. So you had effectively two different narratives coming out depending on which polls you chose to pay attention to and which ones, as you said, backed up, you know, what your priors were. So if you were, you know, you were looking for reassurance and you wanted to be, you know, certain that Remain were ahead, you'd start retweeting Ipsos polls and, and various other telephone polls. And if you were a Lever or you were a more concerned Remainer, you'd start retweeting all of our polls and, and all the other online ones. So in the end, with the actual results, um, the online polls generally were, were pretty close. I mean, some of us were on the correct side of the balance. I think we had 51 Leave and 49 Remain. Some people were slightly on the other side. It, it comes down to a margin of error there. But generally, the story was the online's got it correct. So it's a challenge because in each election, each major vote, what we're trying to do to an extent is model the electorate. So we're trying to get a good picture of who's actually going to turn out, who's not going to bother, of the people telling us that, oh, yeah, I'm 100% certain to vote. Are they telling us the truth or have we got too many of that kind of person? Mm. So the problem that opinion polls have had more generally for the last couple of years is that we've, we sample too many people who are super keen and who, mm. um, present company accepted, listen to podcasts like this <laughs> and, and yeah. get really into their, their politics and you know, they're on Twitter, which most people aren't. Um, and the big challenge for the industry, which I don't think anyone's really addressed satisfactorily, is how to get less engaged people, how to address that balance. Because when it comes to parties, we can make sure we have the right number of Tories, the right number of Labour people. But getting the right number of non-voters is really challenging because effectively you're making a choice each yeah. time. How many people do we think are going to turn out? Bam, that's the model that then determines. Can, can yeah. I ask you something? Mm. Is it, I mean, my impression just from looking at this stuff from a totally superficial point of view is that sometimes the movement is more reliable than the numbers. I is that, I mean, is that a fair assessment that if you're polling effectively a constant group of people you can chart as their shift of opinion mm. much more accurately than absolutely what numbers and percentages support which I think that's thing. generally true and um, one of the one of the advantages of um, 
<laughs> um, yeah, polling has advantages and disadvantages. But one of the good things is that because we've got lots of different companies putting out their models, each with, in theory, the same incentive to get it right and try different ways of doing that, you can take sort of the average of all of those and, and data from different sources and you can extrapolate an overall trend. Well, we're going to be talking to Adam and Paul later about how to win the branding battle in a people's vote campaign. And they'll be with us for the news too, which we'll dive into after a few reminders from Alex. Brexit is, of course, a gift that keeps on giving. God, how we wish it would stop. <laughs> but if your taste for presents runs to the more conventional, may we recommend a visit to the Romaniacs online Christmas market. We've got All I Want for Christmas is EU and I Heart Brussels Brackets Sprouts on smart mugs and T-shirts, plus brand new T-shirt designs and phone cases on less Christmassy themes. There's enough to see you through the year when we can make sure that Britain definitely doesn't leave the EU, search Romaniacs Christmas Markets or go to rmncmerch.myshopify.com. Ooh, that's catchy. <laughs> All of our high-quality merchandise is handmade by hard-working EU migrant elves <laughs> and delivery is guaranteed before Christmas. Let's face it, it's the last Christmas that any delivery of anything will be guaranteed, <laughs> so you should probably buy and freeze next year's turkey now as well. Meanwhile, if you don't like online shopping and you're in London, we'll be hawking our wares on a stall at the Social Bars own Bricks and Mortar Christmas Market on Saturday, December the 8th from midday to 5.30pm. Remainix will be joining Rough Trade Books, Cold War Steve, Heavenly Records, Faber Social and many more who will be selling characterful gifts as the mulled wine flows and the mince pies fly. Come on down to the Social, 5 Little Portland Street in London and say hello. God blesses everyone, even tiny Michael Gove. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Alex. Now loosen your belts for an artery-clogging, gut-buster serving of Brexit news. We usually try to divide it into three easily digested chunks, but this week we're going to try and clear the whole plate in one go. <laughs> <laughs> so, the government was found to be in contempt of Parliament for refusing to disclose its legal advice, except in summarised TLDR form. Labour's shadow Attorney-General, Shami Chakrabarti, had accused Attorney-General Geoffrey Cox of trying to run out the clock on revealing the legal advice to help May's deal pass, which makes this vote a real cox blocker. <laughs> Naomi. <laughs> <laughs> Naomi, what does this mean, the contempt vote? Well, um, the vote in itself is completely unprecedented. Uh, Charles Bradlaw was the last MP to be found in contempt of court, and he is a bit of a hero of mine, so do go and look when, him up. When was that? 18... Um, eight. In the olden days. <laughs> yes. okay. Before I was born. He's not around say, now. I right? want to say 1890, but it may have been earlier. Um, and, uh, but now the whole government is uh, has been found to be uh, in contempt of Parliament. So this is hugely significant. Andrea Leadsom was forced to say that the uh, legal advice would be published today. It was published just before we came into the studio to start recording. I have had a quick squiz through it. And it's a complete disaster for the government. Um, it lays bare the unvarnished truth about how bad her Brexit deal really is. Uh, Northern Ireland could be carved off. Uh, we could end up in a Brexit Groundhog Day of more and more talks. And so she kept it all quiet because it shines a light on the weaknesses of her deal, um, as we all knew um, why she was trying to keep it under wraps. But now now we absolutely know. Um, and basically, it tells us that there is no mechanism that lawfully allows us to exit the backstop unless both sides agree. Um, and so basically what that ends up doing is locking us in, into it indefinitely at a cost of at least £39 billion. Um, You know, a long-term rule taker with no say all pay, which she knows the Brexiteers uh, will absolutely hate. So, but is, yeah. I mean, is that something we didn't know? Because I had a, a read through it as well. And as someone with a legal training, there was absolutely nothing in there that that hadn't been revealed before. Um, I mean, fair enough, it's in pretty direct language. It, it has a few bits that basically people who can't put it in their own words can quote directly from it, which is quite damaging. But to me, it seems it seems like they were holding back on it mm. as a as a device to be able to point to the other side and say, oh, look, they're bothering with processy things that are irrelevant in order to try and put various sticks of dynamite into this deal I've done. Isn't that a danger? That that the remain the remain side are seen as the technocrats trying to stop this thing by fiddling the rules. Yes, and that's why uh, some of the legal challenges that have 
both been very successful and unsuccessful, haven't moved the dial with voters at yeah. all, because voters tend to dismiss all of this sort of stuff as, oh, you're, yeah, you're, you're fiddling with the process and not really understanding the bigger picture of how we feel about all of mm-hmm. this. So mm-hmm. you, I think you're right on that. Um, but, you know, I, I think it probably does hurt her now because it's, it is laid there in black and white. It's yet again their own assessment, their own uh, official advice, which is telling them exactly what they don't want to hear and that certain people in her party certainly don't want to hear. Um, Paul, how does this look to the public? As Naomi suggested, it's like, it, I mean, it's quite a sort of niche interest, sort of legal advice and certainly parliamentary procedure. Does this, is it, does this make much difference, do you think, to the... Well, over the years, most your average voter doesn't care about process. And whenever, um, you know, that's borne out in almost every election. They're, they're happy to watch a debate uh, and hear, hear about uh, political opinions from a, from a debate. But when the topic turns to discussing the process of voting uh, or 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 political process, they turn off, their eyes go completely blank. I'm surprised people are not more excited about the uh, rulings on the revelation of legal advice. It seems like <laughs> <laughs> it seems like something everyone would get hyped about. Um, but isn't this, isn't this part of a kind of a larger problem, is that this lack of interest in process, and what Brexit is, is process. So they start with just like, well, we voted to leave. Brexit means Brexit. Yeah. Get on with it. And all this stuff is basically just like, I don't want to think about literally anything that needs to happen between my you know me saying leave and us leaving and so you know it's it's incredibly frustrating of course if you're therefore trying to change people's minds by going but look it's look at all the problems which mean it can't happen if they just go make it happen i think you've got to turn process into into something about policy really so instead of talking about process, you talk about the policy implications, the political implications. I think if you can do, if you can manage to do that, then uh, th- then you're much more likely to capture the attention of the people. As we're talking, a process is also the the legal news that we could actually unilaterally revoke Article 50, which was certainly uh, unclear before now. What difference does that make to the to Remainers? It makes a, a, a huge difference because it creates a path to remain that is actually simple and instant, basically. Um, the, I mean, the problem with it is that actually if you read the full opinion of the Advocate General, it does uh, involve some caveats in that it can't be used as a ruse to extend Article 50, for which you do need um, support from the other uh, 27 members. You can't revoke it and then re-invoke it in order to extend the time by another two years. It has to be basically based on a genuine desire that you now wish to remain a member. That's the caveat. That's a, that's a big thing. Um, and and for that to happen without a people's vote preceding it, I think, would be politically very, very difficult, unless there is a general election in between. And one of the two parties goes into it clearly Uh, advocating as their policy to revoke Article 50. I think that that ruling, which we expect to go through next Tuesday, and the Grieve Amendment um, has created exactly, as you said, that that route to victory for getting a people's vote and keeping us in the EU. But what we now have to be very careful of is that, of course, what that is doing is opening up options for all of those five different groups, I think, that you mentioned earlier, Alex. And so what we have to be absolutely prepared for is next Tuesday to be the dominant voice of saying, OK, here's how you stop Brexit. Here is how you stop having to talk about Brexit. Here is how we will stop having to have endless negotiation for another 10 years. Here's one we made earlier. And, 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 And I think that is absolutely crucial because I think if we're not... If we haven't uh, prepared properly and we've got our plan in place, there will be EFTA people, EEA plus people, Norway Absolutely. plus people, everyone is going to be vying for that space yeah. to, next, to next turn Wednesday those, morning. To turn those board of Brexit votes into, into their, let's just stop yeah, this yeah, exactly, now, please. Exactly. Adam, I saw this this uh, amazing bit of polling from, from Comrades, which it said that... Um, Basically, people didn't like anything. <laughs> they oppose May's deal, 42-26. They oppose no deal, 41-34. They oppose remaining, 45-44. to They oppose a second referendum, 50-40. to They oppose extending the date when the UK leaves the EU, 46-34. But they support renegotiating with the EU, which, of course, is just like kind of, you know, like just better. We just want something better. Like what does that as, as a as and a actually Jeremy, not available? Yeah, not available. Yeah, it's the Jeremy. That's the Jeremy Corbyn option. We'll just yeah. just do yeah, it better. Just do it a little better. Yeah. Yeah. A little better. 
what when you when you look at sort of figures like that and you look at that sort of public opinion like what do politicians do i mean it seems like an almost insoluble situation where basically every option except the magic one is unpopular yeah and i think that again speaks to the level and sort of tone of the public debate that we've had over the last couple of years even before the referendum where as i said it wasn't about the trade-offs this is going to involve yeah if we want to get to that it's going to involve some pain if yeah these are the things that you have to sacrifice to get the thing that you want so i think there was there was a moment after the referendum um where um yeah sort of soft remainers and uh, conservative leaning remainers were very open to saying okay let's let's get on board with a more sort of compromise solution so that's where the, the eea uh, momentum has sort of come from and what's happened in the two years since then has been effectively sort of driving those away and hardening the remain vote so rather than coming to accept uh, the results of the referendum you see more and more remainers saying actually no i do want a second deal uh, a second referendum so the percentage that we have when we asked um, among remainers has gone from being sort of you know 50ish percent of remainers saying yes let's have a vote on the final deal up to the sort of high 60s and 70s so um remainers have come you know largely on board with the idea of having a second vote and i think that is in large part a response to being so sort of cut out of the process so early on so the interesting thing, um, as well as the fact that there's not really been much information about, well, there's been information about what no deal means, but one of the other depressing facts of, of the debate over the last couple of years has been basically how everything is now seen as being in bad faith. So warnings mm. from you know, independent bodies, you know, the Bank of England, etc. As soon as anything comes out saying, no, this is what's going to happen, it's now, oh, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? They're just trying to get us to remain. So all yeah. of this, the establishment trying to keep yeah, us yeah. in, all of this conspiracy theory, um, it basically means that any kind of warning about there are trade-offs involved, there is, you know, there are realistic choices that we have to make, is instantly seen through the lens of, oh, you're just trying to trick us to keep us in. But this is the problem with that, the whole narrative of the establishment, the elites, as if everybody's on the same sort of page and so kind of you know sort of political elites are aligned with the bank of england are aligned mm. with like a salad importer <laughs> are aligned with the sort of the nhs because they might need insulin and stuff like that it's sort of like this whole thing which of course has come from sort of right and left and it's just a populist narrative of the establishment which seems to just have contaminated literally anybody in a position to know the consequences of a no deal counts as establishment even if they have no like political power, but but if you look, but also if you look at the breakdown of the demographics of how the vote went, there is some basis to that. So it can't be completely dismissed because what you get is that the highest concentrations of leave vote are among people who are doing the worst and who have been doing the worst through this last ten years of recession and austerity. So. You, you can't just dismiss it. It is actually the people, because you, you effectively have two categories. You have philosophical Eurosceptics who have always wanted to leave Europe. And then you have another huge slice, which is the slice that took leave over the top, which are the people who feel they have nothing to lose. No, I know. They no, have nothing not, left to lose it's not by my, kicking my over point the table. Is not that, yeah. It's not that. My point is that if establishment comes to mean anybody in any position sure. of power or expertise. So basically, it ends up covering everybody who could possibly give you an informed warning as to the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. Counts as establishment, whether they're, you know, sort of extremely wealthy or not, if they're just a, a, scient a scientist weirdly, or whatever. the Daily Mail doesn't, doesn't count, count as establishment. establishment. So it's more yeah. that, you know. <laughs> or Jacob Rees-Mogg. Or Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know. Now, Alex, despite the fact this podcast is called Romaniacs and not Theresa Maniacs, <laughs> you've oh, asked dear. to put your case for MPs and the people to support May's deal. What well, the hell has happened to you? <laughs> Listen, I, not necessarily to support May's deal, but I do think it's being dismissed out of hand, and I think that's a mistake. And I'm perfectly happy to explain why. Okay, there are, first of all, let me de declare a self-interest. As a as an EU27 migrant to this country, Theresa May's deal means I don't fall into a, a complete legal void. And the same goes for a million and a half British people living on the continent. So that is a big thing for me, and I haven't heard it mentioned once in any debate. Um, and I find that personally annoying. It feels like a snub for that not to even be on the table. Um, but the, the more general uh, point is this. How did we end up here? 
I think if I were to simplify how we ended up where we are at the moment in this binary position between no deal and no Brexit effectively, I think we ended up here because the ERG, so the hard Brexiteers, overreached after the vote. So they got a 52-48 result, which to me screamed an EFTA-type deal, a Norway-type deal. That's what it called for. And I know it called for that because that's how Norway ended up in that place. They had a 52-48 referendum to not enter the EU. So as a mature, non-insane nation, they went, Okay, that means the thing we have to do is to be out of Europe, but as closely aligned to Europe as possible. And the ERJ and the people on that side overreached. And I don't think people on the other side should make the same mistake and overreach when they feel the other side is in a weakened state in order to get 100% of their victory and impose a complete defeat on the other half Would of the population. Would you vote for the deal basically. if you were an MP? Then? No, all I'm saying is, you know, Sun Tzu... Uh, sort of really basic stuff. Build your opponent a golden bridge from which to retreat. At the moment, we don't have that. It's like bridge. interviewing the Wu Tang. We're, we're, <laughs> we're forcing half the population of this country into a complete humiliation, and I cannot see that ending well. What the May Deal does, terrible as it is, is it gives us time. It gives time without anything actually changing. Without, without anything negative actually happening, it gives us two at least extra years and possibly many more. And we know that time is on Remain's side, both because the demographic change means that the more people effectively of the Brexiteer um, group fall off one end and the more voters we have coming into the other end, the more Euro-friendly the country becomes. And the second way it plays into what Remain want is that the further away from the initial referendum another vote is, the more legitimate it appears. So there is a difference between having a vote two years after the last Mm. vote and a difference between having it four years after the last vote. And I think those are things we all must consider rather than go, hurrah, it's my turn now to step on your throat. I don't think that's how democracy should work. Well, we're talking about work. throat stepping with, with Edwin Paul later. I just wanted to ask, polling-wise, um, is there a term for what Alex beautifully put as falling off the edge? Um, it, what's it called? Is that demographic churn? What's the way of doing it without literally referring to people dying? <laughs> <laughs> you could say it's a cohort effect. Okay. Oh, I can't I like actually think that. of a better one than what Alex came up with. Uh, but yeah, demographic <laughs> churn is is a nice scientific way of putting it. Cohort yeah. effect. Cohort effect. Well, the, the the point about a cohort effect is it isn't necessarily the case that young people are pure Brexit. They are at the moment, but in ten years' time, will they be pure remain? Pure remain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we're just going to we're going to move on to um, what how people's vote campaign might look. Uh, but before we do, uh, spare a thought for Nigel Farage. There's trouble in racist paradise uh, as Farage has decided that UKIP has has, has overstepped the line, thus revealing that it was in fact a line. Um, I mean. What is this anything to is there any point of principle here or is this just his sort of do you think that UKIP is of no use to him anymore? Well, I think this is something that's been under-analysed in the last 24 hours as a big piece of news. I think it really is pointing to um, the the realignment of political parties. It really isn't clear to me why Farage would choose now to surrender the UKIP brand to people like 10 Names, Tommy Robinson, um, who are politically toxic. I think that this really is about... The fact that May is about to betray Brexit in his eyes. Um, and so you'd, you'd really think that UKIP was about to have um, a resurgency and be much more important. So in terms of why resign now, I suspect it's because he thinks May isn't going to be around for much longer. And he's about to get his Conservative Party back again, which is what he has always wanted, led by an arch-Brexiteer. Um, he is a huge fan of what happened in Canada, where a small right-wing party popped up out of nowhere, grew exponentially and then over the merge with the existing Conservative Party. Much like really, a tumour. Exactly, <laughs> exactly that. 
um, uh, 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 the parasite took the host. Um, and I think that is exactly what he is hoping is going to happen with the Conservative Party at the moment. And so I really wouldn't be surprised if that's what all of this is about. Could it be also that he's expecting that if this thing goes a particular way, a part of the Tory party might schism away? creating the possibility of this new Brexity right-wing grouping. Absolutely. I just think it's been underreported. This is pointing to a big realignment of what's happening with the political party. So now we're going to try and step out of the maelstrom for a bit and look ahead to ask if we manage to force a people's vote, how do we win it? Specifically, how do we use political marketing and branding as well as Leave did in the 2016 vote? So we've got two specialists with us, Adam Drummond of the polling organisation Opinion, a political marketing expert, Professor Paul Baines of the University of Leicester Business School. Before we get into Operation Rebranding Remain, uh, Paul, do you think that, that, that this sort of last two or three years will be seen as a, as a sort of watershed in political marketing? Has it, has it sort of... Um, has something new happened or as sort of an expert in the field, do you, do you, was it still sort of following a certain kind of uh, campaign logic? Well, I think something new did happen in 2016. And, and that was really the shift from um, from discussing uh, political um, politics in a kind of largely positive way uh, in previous elections, but not always fully positive, to a much more propagandist approach uh, You've got to remember that the, the um, Leave and Remain both uh, put forward propagandist arguments. Uh, we had the £350 million on a bus uh, from, uh, uh, from Leave, uh, but we also had the, uh, the end is nigh from the, um, uh, from the Remain side. And so that was the beginning, really, of, uh, of populism, at least in our country. Mm. Uh, and that, for, that, that was before Trump was elected. So... Um, the, the populism, uh, I think, really started for us uh, around that sort of time. The idea that it's difficult to uh, to, to believe anybody, um, the damage trust in politicians. I mean, very few people trust politicians these days. Uh, so the, the 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 poor sort of credibility, if you like, of uh, in the public's eyes of politicians, is something I think that's that's newer now than it than it was before. So it's going to be much harder to cut through. And I, I want to talk about lying. And um, in, an, in a general election campaign, if you make promises that you then do not deliver on in office, you will be punished for that. I mean, most, most sort of famously recently, I suppose you'd say, you know, the Lib Dems, who still are being punished for the tuition fees you turn. But in a referendum, it seems, because you're not expecting another one, although, you know, God willing, um, <laughs> it seems like, is, is there a case that it just isn't a moral hazard for lying, that you, you do whatever it takes to get over the line. And then because the campaign, as is the case here, the people behind the campaign aren't necessarily the people doing the, you know, negotiating. So they can then just go, well, you know, it, was, it wasn't a lie. So we wanted this to happen, but it hasn't happened. So does it create an environment, a referendum, where it just incentivizes deceit? Probably. But I think there's two different types of voter. There's the prospective voter and the retrospective voter. And it depends on the nature of, I mean, it's quite complex, this, but and it depends on where people are voting uh, from. But retrospective voting is where you vote on a party's record. So if it's an incumbent government um, and you're uh, looking at, uh, uh, and they're standing for office again, uh, then people will evaluate them on the back of what they've done in the past. If, however, it's a, a new uh, party that's that's looking uh, ahead, uh, maybe with a tired government, incumbent government, then people vote prospectively. So retrospective voting, for example, would have occurred in 1992 when people eventually decided on John Major's Conservatives. But prospective voting was probably in evidence when people voted in 1997 for Tony Blair's New Labour. Mm. So it all depends, really, on 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 the, the exact circumstances. Now, looking at, at, at the, uh, perhaps a second referendum, how would people vote? Then I think you'd, you'd get a slew of people who would think about whether or not this last couple of years had uh, changed their view or not. So the difficulties that, have, that are clearly apparent in, in exiting the European Union 
a number of people would would think along those lines, but other people wouldn't necessarily uh, consider that. They would simply vote as they did before, and I think a large proportion would probably vote as they did before. But there would be a group of persuadables on both sides who might shift. Mm. Adam, I, I did a piece uh, th- this time last year when I spoke to um, you about people changing their minds and how that hadn't happened on a huge scale yet. And, um, you know, we're a year on from that. It's still not the sort of seismic shift, is it? Is, has, it, has, it has the kind of pace of, of leave to remain change accelerated at all? I mean, how, or is it just this very kind of slow moving thing where most people are just sticking to their original decision? So the closest thing we've got to an average for what different you know, different recent polls are saying is that generally the, the Remain percentage has sort of ticked up a bit. You're right, it hasn't been a seismic shift or anything like that. We're, we're sort of in the territory that we, you could say we thought we were going to be in in the referendum campaign when we thought Remain were going to sort of edge it, mm. um, which to my mind basically is not anywhere near like able to withstand the heat of a referendum campaign. That's a very sort of soft lead. Um, and in part, that's driven by, as we were delicately saying earlier, a cohort effect or demographic churn. Um, and in part, it's driven by people who didn't vote last time or were on the fence last time. Generally, they've been moving more towards Remain than to leave. So there's actually very little movement between the two camps. And we do this um, whenever we do any kind of uh, polling about uh, anything political. We always include how do you vote in the referendum, and we have the data for the people uh, that we had on our panel at the time. And you go back and look, and it's single figures who are on either side who say they've moved. So it's really quite static. Well, there's, um, there's quite a startling sort of uh, statistic of, of how many people think that no deal means no change and mm. therefore that when you ask them if they support any deal or not, or in, a, in a way they're kind of the answers are very hard to pass because it's like well do they understand the implications of the question mm. um, do you think that there would be more change if people were better informed I think one of the big gaps actually and uh, if <laughs> and it's failing on my part that I haven't done more um, before this program but um, <laughs> has been there's a real gap um, in the sort of research and, and polling world about what actual public understanding of no deal is and I think you're right a big chunk of it is people think that no deal is status quo you know if you apply it to any other situation you know no deal is I don't buy that house or no deal is I don't buy that car and you stay as you are whereas in this case no deal means tin food and planes not flying so there needs to be a lot more work done on that but again just going back to the point we were talking about earlier, because there is such little sort of trust in neutral bodies, um, and we've seen the resurrection of you know the phrase Project Fear, there's a huge danger that all of the you know extremely valid warnings about the dangers of No Deal are just seen through the same lens as you know the sort of Osborne Project Treasury Fear, right? Project Fear exactly, mm-hmm. um, and Leave has got an astonishing boost by the fact that. Remain did over-egg it in the referendum campaign and tying all of those predictions to just the vote rather than actually leaving. Mm. Um, and then every time you see any kind of projection come out now, it's, oh, economic projections are wrong, oh, there wasn't a recession in 2016, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's given them this inoculation almost against um, any kind of economic predictions um, as valid as they may be. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you. I think that, as a campaigner, our fear with soft Brexit is that you don't get the cliff edge happening to the economy. So people do not associate a falling living standard to having left the European Union immediately because it will atrophy over a longer period of yeah, time. Yeah, and it becomes meanwhile, a thing that may have happened exactly, anyway. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and meanwhile, the Brexiteers are pushing for their harder Brexit uh, mm. all the while. Yeah. So I've always said that I think soft Brexit just delays hard Brexit. It doesn't, it doesn't test you know, hard Brexit to destruction. No, Although exactly. that phrase is probably a bit more apt than it should be. Which would be a very effective argument against what I was saying earlier, that we should consider the May deal. You know, this this idea, I find it very compelling that soft mm. Brexit merely delays well, hard Brexit. Actually, Sean Jones on Twitter said it a bit better f- than I am. Sure. So he says, Leavers want no EU rules and no say in their making. Remainers want EU rules and a say in their making. And May thinks EU rules and no say in their making is a compromise. <laughs> this is a genuinely ridiculous proposition. Yeah. Yeah. I understand. I think, it's a, I think it's a poor deal. But like I said, it just gives time. Well, I was sort of going back to what Alex was saying earlier. Naomi is our sort of resident people's vote mastermind. Um, I want to raise some of the reservations I've been seeing a lot recently um, on Twitter. Firstly, there's the claim that another referendum campaign would be bitter, divisive, unlike politics now, which is a chilled (laughs) out tea party, and a boon to the far right. And 
if Remain won, it could do long-term damage to democracy because thwartedly voters, some of whom hadn't, don't normally vote, would feel that their, their choice didn't count. And these seem to be the two, without getting into kind of like lurid spectacles of like, oh, well, you know, look at Paris. Mm. It'll be burning cars. Mm. Um, those, do, those, are, those do seem to be the kind of major reservations, even coming from Remainers who are kind of antsy mm-hmm. about how a people's vote would play out. Um, now, obviously, we're talking everything is an imperfect option here. Well, what's your counter-argument? The, the key counter-argument is to say that we must never run a campaign the same way ever again. And by that, I both mean the individuals involved. It has to be represented by people who look and sound completely different to last time. That We cannot have a continuity, project fear, continuity, stronger in campaign happening. That That's crucial. But I also mean in terms of the mechanisms of it. And we have other referendum campaigns to look at to see what a good model of that looks like. And of course, this will be different because it will be a choice between some known entities as opposed to last time when very few voters knew what either option really meant for them. And we can look to Ireland to see how they ran their pretty successful abortion referendum campaign extremely well. That was no laissez-faire approach to it whatsoever. There was huge investment went into making sure that town hall meetings happened across the country, that people had very, very clear facts about what it meant if the legislation went through, what impact that would have on the ability of people to access mm-hmm. terminations of their pregnancy, etc. And so there are there are plenty other good examples of how we need to do that. So it's both the people involved have got to be totally different, the tone, but also just the, the, the format of doing it. It can't be seen as a Westminster bubble, shouty, shouty, slanging match at one another. Mm. It's got to be taken out to the country properly and proper investment put into it. But what do you think uh, is the sort of having obviously written a book about the failures last time, what do you think is the kind of the biggest, you know, obstacle? If you were advising uh, the People's Vote, you know, the, the, the Remain campaign once People's Vote kicked off, um, what would be the one thing that you think you'd have to focus on or the one kind of failure last time that you had to avoid above all others? Well, I, I think there, it's the process, really. The process to get there is, is quite difficult. First of all, the uh, government's deal has got to be voted down on December the 10th. Then they've got to vote no confidence in the PM. Then they've got to demand a second referendum. And then they've got to campaign for Remain in that, in, that, in that referendum. If you think about the Scottish referendum, that nearly went the wrong way as far as the government was concerned. Mm. But a kind of white knight in the form of Gordon Brown turned up and managed to secure a different deal. I think what they would need to really focus on is getting the EU to bend a bit and offer a bit more of a, uh, a flexible deal. And that would be the equivalent of a white knight. Whether they're prepared to do that or not is another matter. And they are well known for playing hardball and probably always will. But mm. do, you, do you think that because you were saying there's, a, there's, a, there's always a small number of persuadables, immigration seems to be the major drive, immigration concerns seems to be the major driver for Leave voters. Definitely. Um, but do you think that that mainly applies to, I suppose, the Leave base that you're not going to convince anyway and so that you can... You can win the persuadables without having to sort of cave on on, on immigration. I mean, because that's not something, obviously, that Remainers are going to want to be going doing. You know, let's stay, but we'll crack down on immigration because that just seems to be antithetical. I, I mean, I, it, I think it would be extraordinarily difficult to win um, a second referendum without doing something on immigration without without pushing the EU to do something on immigration that is it's still an important issue uh, in people's minds Um, so I I think there would need to be something on that that's probably uh, if there are any true red lines that's probably one of them I think the free movement of of people issue is obviously something the EU are are deeply concerned about but in a sense it's um, I think people in this country see what happened in Europe, particularly Germany, letting lots of uh, people, lots of, uh, I think a million um, migrants come in, was a key um, watershed moment. And I think that frightened a lot of people in, in, in the UK. And that might have been the beginning of, of that whole shift towards uh, the really negative, nasty mm. kind of uh, politics that we saw with the you know, posters of people from Turkey and all the rest of it in the EU referendum. I, I do think there'd have to be some accommodation on the uh, on that issue. And Adam, from your uh, polling, what do you think is the 
uh, again, if you were in a kind of advisory role, what what would be your sort of priority? What what's the kind of the biggest obstacle for a, a Remain campaign next time around? So I think one of the biggest obstacles has. I mean, it depends entirely on what options are on the ballot paper, which is something we haven't discussed, but it's obviously enormous. Yeah, but yeah we'll do that. There's, um, there's a huge sort of structural advantage that Leave had last time, which wouldn't necessarily be the case this time. So let's say we're talking about um, a referendum between, say, staying in and leaving on the terms of the government deal. So the deal is now is tangible. It's you can talk about the details, and you can if somebody says it will do this, it will do that. Well, you can point to it and say no, it doesn't. It does this instead. And so rather than having the sort of pie in the sky unicorn type approach, which um, different parts of the various different Leave campaigns were able to do last time and say, oh no, this will be totally fine. This will be totally fine. We'll resolve that. That'll be fine. Now that there is an actual deal on the table, you can say, well, yeah, how? Because the deal mentions that this is going to happen to this and that's going to happen to that. So the tangibles, and it's something that you know people can actually get their teeth into and talk about the specifics uh, rather than it just being bashed away. That's a huge change to the sort of structure of it. Um, just going uh, back to the point earlier for a moment, though, about um, the way that Ireland does referendums, uh, which I think you're right, is, is a model for how that kind of referendum should happen. But the problem is, of course, that the way that we're going to have a referendum, if we have one, it's going to be the sort of last-minute get-out-of-jail um, way to resolve a deadlock in Parliament. So we have to assume, I think, that a lot of the, the underlying structures are going to be similar you know, in terms of things like the yeah. franchise and um, you know, the, the campaigning laws, etc., are going to basically be whatever they can take off the shelf and get passed quickly. So effectively, in many ways, a rerun of, of last time. Mm. So one of the things I thought um, Leave benefited from, which... Being the sort of you know the stale, unpopular incumbent, Remain couldn't really do. One of the things that Remain potentially therefore has the ability to do this time is to have those, that kind of two-track campaign, because at the same time in 2016 you had one campaign saying we will be open to the world, we will be you know we will be embracing new trade deals and and being free trading and, and liberalising and Singapore on terms and all of that, and then on the other side. Advocating for the same option on the ballot paper, you had people saying we're going to put up the walls, we're going to pull up the drawbridge, and we're going to be extremely restrictive. Well. To an extent, yeah, you can't do that so much with the status quo, but you can try much more to engage different reasons for possibly supporting Remain. Yeah. So you can make much more of that positive case, mm. which podcasts like this one and organisations like, you know, OFOC and FFS and My Life, My Say and all the others um, and the European movement are doing really effectively to you know, rally pro-Europeans to that. And at the same time, you can have a more official campaign aimed at those kind of wavering, more conservative-minded voters who... Yes, it's the most practical option. Let's just get this out of the way. Um, so you can engage both of those much more effectively, I think, than was the case in 2016. To your point about riots on the streets, you know, you didn't use that phrase, but you know, we have heard that from those who yeah, say yeah. we mustn't have a second referendum because it will lead to. Well, you know, we we we'd had riots on the streets. Was it in 2011? Yeah, and that was young people who were really angry, and we talked about you know tuition fees and and Liberal Democrat U-turns and things like that that had happened when they entered coalition government. I I I just I, I we cannot give in to that kind of threat of, of fear and it, there's nothing to say that it wouldn't happen if we Brexit in well, a way exactly. that is totally unfavourable to the under 40s. medicine shortages mm. that's you know, when you're going to see real civil I, do, I mean I do find that hugely <clears throat> I find it really irresponsible yeah. the kind of the threat of riots it re- really annoys me because yeah. it's just like well you know what we can't leads to demo- riots yes, it's kind exactly. of like yeah. massive shock recession yeah. but Paul can I just ask um Obviously, emotion and identity, which are related, um, huge drivers of of support for Leave then and now. And an enduring problem for the Remain camp seems to be that it's sort of middle class and metropolitan, which is a, as a middle class person who lives in North London, I don't understand where this stereotype comes from. But is that something that can be overcome through the use of the sort of the, the right messages and messengers how how do you get past how do you basically have leaders still prominent figures without seeming like oh it's the elitists despite the fact that leave could have prominent figures such as farage johnson and mogg and that would apparently be fine because they represent the people i think i mean you're talking about credible voices really Mm. and who is a credible voice um i think business uh, has a strong say i mean business is uh, has been typically uh, more remain than uh, than leave uh, not necessarily complete, um, uh, completely, but in a sense, business is very pragmatic and almost apolitical. But, but most people think that uh, they'll do more business if they're inside the European Union than outside. And there are exceptions, but that's the, the general view. So I think you'd want voices from business, prominent people like uh, 
uh, Richard Branson, for example, who's uh, been remain talking to to this campaign. You would want people who have uh, who, who do have a command of uh, who have a large number of followers. Um, but the the other thing is the targets that you would be uh, looking at, because really any campaign to remain to to win and remain, therefore, in a, in a people's referendum in a second vote would need to. A, persuade young people to vote in much greater numbers, and B, persuade older folks who tended to vote uh, leave last time that they would be, if they vote leave again, that they would be, it will be a selfish vote, and in fact they really should be thinking of, of, of the youngsters mm. because they won't be around uh, in X number of years to, uh, uh, to, to see the fruits of their, uh, of their leave vote. So I think that that would be a key dynamic that you would have to play. Now, getting young, older people, there's twice as many of them, and they're twice as likely to vote. So, sadly, an older person's vote is uh, is is more important than inverted commas. But actually, that that that's that would be one thing that, that uh, a Remain campaign would have to do would be to drive to drive through to young people that they cannot be complacent about this. They must start to engage in standard party politics. And actually, just one of the points about leaders there, so that does kind of highlight one of the, well, one of the sort of disadvantages that Remain Mark II, or I assume it won't be called that, has, is that when we do um, one of the... One oh, of the, God, please, no. Not the best title. How can we Remain them again. <laughs> well, you know that the Leave campaign slogan for the second referendum is going to be, tell them again. Mm. Which part of Leave don't you understand? Pretty good. Yeah. That's their new take-back control. So the... The point about leaders, though, is that we asked um, a question about just an open text question. Say, which public figure, you know, name a public figure whose views on this subject you respect and you would listen to. And just looking through the data for that, the leavers have people, the mainers don't. So the names that come up all the time, which are the ones you'd expect, is Boris Johnson, it's Nigel Farage, it's Jacob Rees-Mogg, actually more than I thought. Um, and among figures who I could identify as remainers, there's hardly any. And so leavers have got a much clearer fix on who their leaders are. And on something like the deal, for example, where the technical detail is quite important that most people aren't going to read it and they're going to get quite strong sort of elite cues, that does make a difference. So the, the absence of any kind of leader is a, is a handicap. Deborah Meaden for PM. That's what I say. <laughs> so She'd be fabulous. She'd be a fabulous lead for the Remain campaign. So she gets mentioned a couple of times, and I mean literally a couple of times. But that's so because she hasn't Branson. really been... Do any, do any Labour figures get mentioned? Jeremy Corbyn, um, oh. which, um, although I think to an extent that just highlights the fact that most strong Remainers are Labour voters. Mm -hmm. um, so the fact that he is the only, I'll say, Remain-affiliated um, politician who comes through on that side, and also he's mentioned by a number of Leavers as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of important to get some kind of figure there. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. watch, watch this space for what the leader's yeah. office of the opposition But, he, uh, you know, Corbyn has a segment that will basically vote as he tells them, I think, be, that is incredibly loyal. It would be nice if, not he, to if be he got ignored. involved, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd be, yeah, it'd be terrific <laughs> if he didn't spend next campaign on his allotment. Wonderful. Well, keep your phones on at all times. We'll send you the remain signal <laughs> when you're required. Uh, things are a bit tight for the Brexit time capsule. We'll bring it back next week. But here's your closing EU language clip, a bit of Swedish from listener Sean Schneider. Hey, Remeniacker. Var inte dum i huvudet. Brexit är den första idén sedan Theresa May dansade till Labba. Vi kan stoppa Brexit och stanna i EU tillsammans. That means hello, Remaniacs. Don't be stupid in your head. Brexit is the worst idea since Theresa May danced to Abba. We can stop Brexit and stay in the EU together. <laughs> Remember, we need your Euro language clips to record something short, ideally non libelous on your phone, and email it to info at romaniacs.com with the subject line Euro language clip. We'll use the best ones. And that's it for now, Emergency Podcasts willing. But in the meantime, thanks to Paul Baines from the University of Leicester and Adam Drummond from Opinion. We might be seeing you in a war room somewhere soon. And thanks to Alex and Naomi. We'll see you next time for Meaningful Vote Week. Whoop, whoop. <laughs> Until then, here's Demon is a Monster, our fantastic theme tune by Corner Shop, that you can now get as a free download at their Ample Play website. And a salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. Thank you from me to Richard, Elaine Dickens, Aidan Harding, Peter, Tijman Altena, Colin Rose and Sophie. And a hello from me to Sue Cowan-Jensen, James Fail, Denzel Roderick-Rawcliffe, Guy Spear, Martin Perry, J. 
JS and Samuel Kavine. And thanks for me to Neil Hart, Casper Worthington, Kasha, Chris Sawyer, Shirley Smith, Kim Ray and Roger. We will see you next week, if not sooner. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Alex Andre. The producer is Andrew Harrison, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.